<laughs> College. You know, they all of their pictures, and, and it was all there lined up, so you could walk around and see what club that you wanted to be a part of. Now, me, I knew what I was to be a part of. I was going to be a part of the pre-seminary club, the, the club that was uh, members that were planning on going off into seminary and eventually becoming a pastor. It took me a while to find it, but I finally found the table. Oh, there was no fancy trifold, no beautiful pictures. They didn't even have the free candy bars. You know what I'm talking about? Those like little mini candy bars trying to trick you into to joining the club? Not even that. All there was was two guys sitting in a chair and one piece of paper handwritten. Do you like to wear black clothes? <laughs> that was it. But I have to admit, there was something about it that was genius, wasn't there? I mean, right? If you're a guy like me, you don't necessarily know how to match clothes the best. And so, it makes sense. You've got to know one color. Do these pants go with this black shirt? No, I don't want them. Does it go? Perfect. That's all you need. What goes with a black clerical? Now, of course, I knew I was preaching on this this morning, and so you know what I did? Wore a navy blue clerical. That's right. I've advanced over the years. In 20 years, I've learned a few things. But there was a kind of genius about it, about, you know, being able to match clothes or not match clothes. And I know you're thinking, Pastor Chris, that's great, but what does this have to do with anything? And that is kind of the question that comes about, right? What does our clothing choices have to do with anything? And we might think that it has nothing to do with anything, but yet then we get to our parable today. Our parable this morning. And all of a sudden... Clothes become a pretty important factor. And we have to ask this question. What is going on? What is Jesus talking about? How do garments or clothes, or whether clothes match or not, what do they have to do with anything? And that kind of becomes the question. Now, the rest of the parable, I think, makes some kind of sense to us, doesn't it? Jesus is, is talking to a group of people, and again, the Pharisees are included in this. The Jewish leaders are a part of this. And he tells a parable about the kingdom of God. The king is throwing a wedding feast for his son. And so he sends out servants to tell them that it's time. You see, they've already been invited they got the save the date card, you know. They got the invitation magnetized on their fridge. They are ready to go, but they're not. They decide they don't want to go. They have their reasons. Some of them, the second time through, hurt and even kill one of the servants. Now, I know we don't live in a monarchy. We don't have a king. But does it take a lot of our imaginative power to, to imagine what the king is going to do? They abused his servants. They declined his invitation. And now they've even killed one. We understand that he is still the king. And we understand how he's going to react. He takes out those people that have insulted him so. Declined his invitation. And again, in terms of the parable, we kind of get this, don't we? 
We know that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, that Jesus is going to the cross, and there he is going to die. The very leaders of the temple, the ones that, were no, that knew about the invitation, if you will, the ones that knew about the coming of the Messiah, they knew the prophecy. But yet when the Messiah came, they rejected him. And they're going to crucify Jesus. This makes sense. But then the parable keeps going. And the king, once again, sends servants out. Servants to to collect people along the streets. And, And quite frankly, this is a good part of the parable. The kingdom of God is open even to those that were not originally invited. Not part of that that, that original Israel portion that started with Abraham. But no, it even goes as far as the Gentiles. Even those that were not a part of the original invite, if you will. God's kingdom expands even there. And what great news. What great news for us. What good news to share. And we might wish that the parable ended right there, but it doesn't. Instead, the parable keeps going. The king comes out among the wedding feast. He finds somebody who's not wearing his wedding garments, and he has them bound and thrown out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is darkness. And so now we have an issue. What does this mean? We're tempted to ask a lot of questions about the wedding garments, aren't we? And certainly that's where a lot of people go. We ask questions. What about the wedding garments? How did they get the wedding garments? Where did they come from? And a lot of people have done a lot of debate to answer this question. Some people have even theorized that what would happen is the king would actually supply the wedding garments. And so this person was caught not wearing a wedding garment that would have been fully supplied. Now, while we have some historical evidence that this at times did take place, we have none of them that go back this far. None. We have absolutely no evidence that anything like that was taking place, which means we can't really rely on that as an explanation. It sounds really nice. It sounds really good. But when you have absolutely no evidence to support it, we can't necessarily rely on it. But I think personally that we're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be all about the wedding garment, but the question should be, why does he remain silent? Imagine, if you will, that this man is invited to this wedding feast Now, even a person at that time, if wedding garments were not supplied, they would have known to go and put on some nice clothes, their best clothes, their Sunday best, if you will. And what if they were homeless? What if they had no clothes to change into? They would have at least gotten themselves cleaned up. They would have had to. It's the king. You would have at least gone and tried to clean up as best as you could. And if the king comes out and says, hey, how come you're not all cleaned up? At least he would have responded, this is the best I can do. But that's not what he says. He remains silent. He remains silent. He has no words to say. He's been caught. And he knows it. To put it another way, he took the invitation of the king 
cheaply. He assumed that he could get in there, take advantage of the feast, and then not have to worry about doing anything extra, not even so much as cleaning himself up, wearing any type of wedding garment. He just thought he could get in there and take the invitation cheaply. A theologian back in the 30s, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he actually tried to assassinate Hitler, of all things, failed, and then Hitler ended up killing him. But he was running this underground seminary, Lutheran seminary in Germany. Go figure, Lutherans in Germany. (laughs) But he was there, and he wrote several books, a lot of them very good books, but one book in particular called The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lays out a foundation of a phrase that he calls cheap grace. And cheap grace is a lot like what it sounds. It's this idea that grace is cheap. That is to say that grace is something that we get free, it's true, but it has no cost whatsoever. That's a lie. Grace does have a cost. It did have a cost. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died to pay the price for our grace. That we have forgiveness of sins cost Jesus his life cost Jesus his blood. Jesus died and rose again, but his suffering, his pain, was a cost that was paid for our grace. And because of that, our faith changes us. In James, he writes about how faith without works is dead. And a lot of times what we do is we, we confuse the two and, and somehow we get to this idea that, that we need works in order to have faith. But really that's backwards. You see, what James is writing about is he is saying that if we have faith, if we have true faith, works will by, by nature will just follow. We will be changed by the gospel. We will be changed by the fact that we know that Jesus Christ died for us. We will be changed because of our hope and our trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it will cause in us a change. Brought on by the Holy Spirit, we will be caused to repent. That is, to turn from our sins and to walk in newness of life given to us by the Spirit. This is what we mean by cheap grace versus non-cheap grace. You see, cheap grace assumes that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and that there's absolutely no consequence. Grace comes about to just forgive me of my sins, but at the same time, I can still go on living and doing whatever I want. No repentance. No turning from one's sins. No walking in newness of life. But faith, grounded in the Holy Spirit, turns us. When we place our hope and our trust in Christ Jesus, when we receive grace, the forgiveness of our sins, out of that grace, out of that mercy, we walk, but we walk differently. We walk as Christians who try hard not to sin, but also knowing that when we do, That when we stumble, when we fall, when we fail, that we receive forgiveness through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is not cheap. It is very costly. 
And knowing that it is very costly, knowing that it is very costly, we are repentant. This is the difference between cheap grace versus the grace of Holy Scripture. We don't have to do works to earn grace. Grace is a free gift. But because of that free gift, we walk differently. We walk in the light of the gospel, in the light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding,